Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Dan Washburn. For over a century, Americans of Asian descent have occupied an in-between space on the country's racial spectrum, eluding simple definition in a society conditioned to viewing race in black and white terms. This ambiguity came into stark relief in 2020. In the early spring, during the first weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, Asians across the United States reported a disturbing rise in racist harassment and violent attacks. The Black Lives Matter protest movement that triggered a nationwide discussion of race led Asian Americans to reckon with who they are and why they're here in America. Jalin Yang takes this topic head-on in Asian American Ghosts, an article recently published in Asia Society magazine, a new publication from Asia Society that we'll tell you more about at the break. Yang, a deputy national editor at the New York Times, is the author of One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration, 1924-1965, which was published in May 2020. In this episode, she spoke with Asia Society Museum Director Michelle Yun Maplethorpe, herself a contributor to Asia Society magazine. Yun Maplethorpe begins the conversation. So, Jialin, it's a pleasure to meet you this afternoon and to have this opportunity to speak. Um, you know, thank you again for your contributions to the Asia Society magazine. I was really, um, you know, interested in the, your point of entry, you know, thinking in this pandemic time about the history of Asian Americans um, in the United States and, you know, this, this kind of striving for um, becoming American or what, do, what does that mean? And I, and I wonder, you know, if we can just maybe start off this conversation to ask you, you know, what does America, being American mean to you um, in the context of, of your essay and, and what you've been thinking about? Um, well, thanks, Michelle, for having me. It was really an honor to be asked to contribute to this gorgeous magazine. Um, and, you know, I, when I started writing it, I felt like the, the suggestion to write it came right on time because, you know, I've been holed up in the pandemic, like many of you out there listening, and it's been a little bit unnerving, right, to be to hear also about um, attacks, you know, verbal and physical and Asian Americans out on the streets and, I think also with Black Lives Matter and this huge discussion about race in America, you just kind of can't avoid, you know, these are questions I think that for me as an Asian American are sort of always burning somewhere, but not always at the front of my mind. You know, you just have to manage through the day. You don't have time to like sit back and think, what does it mean to be Asian American? And, but to me this year has, it has felt unavoidable. All the things that I didn't quite have worked out in my mind or just felt sort of like, oh, like someone else will work that out or it'll just take care of itself. I think that I feel like this year has been a year where I've questioned those assumptions. Um, and that came from working on my book too. I mean, I think my book is about the slob, you know, the, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which explains why so many of us, people like my family, many others out in the country are here post-1965. Why did so many Asians just show up here after that time? And it's because of this law. And so I was already thinking about kind of why we're here, why I'm here. And so all of it coming together, I think for me to get to your question, I think, I think from looking at the history and looking at this year, it just feels like a country that is constantly 
reinventing itself. And sort of there's always like a rebirth happening. And there are people always struggling over what it is. I mean, in a way, it's so different from Europe, right? Where they're, they're built in aristocracies and old ancient religions. There's always so much in the past. And this country is still, especially if you come, if your family comes from another country, you can feel the newness of it still, right? Even though we've been around for, you know, a few hundred years now, it's still a relatively new project. And you can see it constantly changing. Like the meaning of it is always being made by the people who are here now. And with immigrants, that's that's what immigrants do in this country. It's just it, It's just this constant churning of people who show up bringing different histories and cultures and we make something together every day. And so I think that's what being American means to me. It means coming with something and making something new with other people who come from other places, wherever that might be and wherever their story might be. They might have, they might have flown into JFK airport yesterday. They might have, you know, they might be indigenous people who've been here for far longer than anyone else. They could be something in between, but together we're doing something new. I mean, and I think that you, you know, you, the crux of what America is, is it's, it's a country of immigrants, right? It's kind of the melting pot. And so, you know, I think, and I think particularly for Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, I mean, as you rightly point out, we have been here for, you know, largely since the 19th century, if not some before then. Um, and I, you know, I think maybe we can look at some of the le legislation, especially, you know, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act that you um, are focusing your book on, you know, as a point of departure, but also I think earlier the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act as, you know, kind of legislation or government policies that are specifically trying to define um, for Asian Americans and Chinese Americans specifically what, how they're allowed to be American or not, right? And maybe for those who are tuning in that aren't so familiar with the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, if you could maybe just contextualize that a little bit. So as we refer to it going forward, then people will have a grounding of what that means. Um, yeah. So this law is really important because it comes after a really strict system that was in place from the 1920s on that essentially ranked immigrants by their desirability based on their ethnicity. And that strict system of ethnic quotas was based on eugenics um, and really just racist science and really an idea of white supremacy that being American meant being white, Protestant, you know, Anglo-Saxon, that's a funny term, but that was the idea, right? Very much a WASP identity. And our immigration system, the idea was, should be built on that. We should, we should invite people in who reflect that ethnic makeup and background and culture, whatever you want to call it. And we should really restrict people who are outside of that definition, very strict definition. And so these quotas that were played in place in the 20s all but entirely banned Asian immigration, certainly didn't want people from Africa, Eastern Europe, even sharply reduced Jews. I mean, all, Middle East, all the people that I think we think of now as the modern immigrants, these laws were very much designed to keep out. And 1965 is significant because it is the abolition of those quotas. It says we're no longer going to discriminate based on your race when we ask the question, 
you know, you want to come to the U.S., are we going to let you in? And we're going to have, you know, they retained some numerical cap. It wasn't a, a switch to open borders as we had had before the 1920s, in fact. But it was a very clear statement that when we talk about who gets a visa and who doesn't, racial discrimination is not going, you know, and religious discrimination is not something we're going to do anymore. And so this law is so important because it turns away from this idea of picking immigrants based on their race and allows, you know, through when they replace it, they create something called basically family reunification, or you may have heard that called chain migration from conservatives. But that idea is if you have family here, you are given priority. And so that explains why so many more people from outside Europe were able to come, right? There weren't many when the law was passed, but little by little, and this is true in my own family, and I, you know, I think for many Asian Americans out there, you know, if someone comes as a graduate student stays, um, then their brother or sister comes, they bring their wife, they bring a parent or, you know, a daughter or a son, and then, then they have children like me who are American born, citizen, you know, birthright citizenship, we're here. And suddenly one person leads to a chain of many people. And that alone really, I mean, not alone, but like largely explains why we've seen such an explosion in immigrants from outside Europe. But it all starts with this 1965 law, which beforehand, you know, the quota on Chinese people of Chinese descent was around a hundred people a year. So there's no way that my family would be here if those quotas had stayed and if this 1965 law had not been passed. Sure. I mean, and I certainly would imagine that that really kind of shifted people's sense of agency, right, once this legislation was passed. And and it's very interesting because just a couple of years later, in 1968, the term Asian American is coined, right, formally in, in California. Um, and so, I mean, at thinking about that newfound agency and kind of thinking about where perhaps before um, minorities would be specified by their nationality of origin, then that becomes less of a point of contention, right? Because, I mean, even though there's this kind of physical delineation, but not necessarily like, oh, you know, when you're thinking about World War II or the Vietnam War, or, you know, that you're, um, you're Japanese American, and so therefore we are, you know, segregating you or, or discriminating against you for specific political reasons um, or consequences. Um, but I think that being said, you know, and I think it's always interesting when you look at the history of the United States and you look at the waves of groups of immigrants that, you know, always the newest ones are vilified as the ones that are kind of, you know, um, I guess destabilizing, you know, what America is supposed to be, whatever that is. But, um, you know, and thinking about, you know, when you think about the Irish that came in and they were, you know, vilified at one point. And so kind of in this modern moment or contemporary moment, I mean, and when you look at the fact that Asian Americans represent the fastest mi growing minority group in the United States and specifically in New York, it's like kind of double that of the country and the double digits. And so then thinking about, I guess in the past, you know, again, specifically thinking about World War II, where the, the Japanese American community was vilified as the enemy. And, and at various points, you know, and, and originally when the Exclusion Act was first enacted, that, you know, these groups are seen as, they're used as scapegoats um, 
for other purposes and, and maybe thinking about that parallel to now with the coronavirus and the pandemic and how Asian Americans have been unfairly vilified in this context. I mean, if you wanna share some thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I think we kind of, you know, I think I came to this doing this a lot and I suspect others do it too. It's easy to think about race and these categories stripped of immigration law, right? So in other words, your family just shows up, right? It's like, there's an automatic, oh yeah, you're an immigrant, come on in. And not like this thicket of laws that you have to get through. And anyone who is an immigrant, no, this is a no brainer for anyone listening. But I think for me, at least, I'll just admit, as, as an American-born daughter of immigrants, I didn't have to go through that. And so to me, it was like, oh, it's a nation of immigrants. We're here. This is what we're doing. But in fact, you know, our system is actively selecting who will be here. And so one thing that has struck me is that, you know, how did we go from, as Chinese Americans, how did we go from being, you know, all the nasty stereotypes about Chinese laborers from 18, that led to 1882, right? Sort of being these like, truly like working class people who were totally undesirable. How did the stereotype go from that to what I would argue now is like, you know, overeducated professional class, you know, doctors, engineers, all these things like super high performing, which again is, doesn't begin to capture the breadth of the people who are actually here, but like that's sort of the dominant idea. Well, that's also from our immigration laws. I mean, the 1965 law not only prioritizes families to be reunited, but it says if you have advanced degrees in science, you know, the sciences or engineering or, or some special skill that we need as an economy, we're also going to give you, you know, an extra leg up in the process. You're more likely to be admitted. And so these things shape who's here, right? So in other words, like when you think about what it means to be Asian American and how these categories are made, they're actively being shaped by the laws that we have. It's not just like, oh, Asians are just like this. It's these are the people that we have selected to be here. And so I think, you know, if we're talking about sort of how that changes over time, Yes, we are very much, there's a, there's a story you can tell that goes back to 1882, that goes back to the Japanese American internment camps. These are all experiences, political experiences and political markings that we kind of inherit no matter when you show up. But there's also something very different about the people who are here, right? And I think the immigrants who come here don't know that history either. And so we shouldn't assume that if, you're, if you check the box, Asian American in the census, that you somehow are the same in some way as right, the Chinese laborers out West, the Japanese Americans in the camps. It's a new group that's constantly, you know, and I'd also add the ethnic diversity is stunning. It's not anything like we've seen before. We have people from Cambodia, right? We have Hmong. We have many, many more people from mainland China. My family is from Taiwan. Um, a lot of the families I grew up around, they were, they were connected to Hong Kong. People from mainland China, it's a different, it's a totally different political history they're bringing. And so this category Asian America, I think, just keeps getting changed with every wave of new people. And it's not a thing that, um, as I was saying before, that's static. It's not a thing that you just inherit from the people who came before. Just by sheer numbers, we've just, as a group, never been here before. We've, I think I say in my essay, we're, there are millions of people here. We've never in American history had so many people of Asian descent here at one time. We'd like to take a short break to talk about Asia Society Magazine, an exciting new publication. Featuring writing, data visualization, photography, and original illustrations, the annual print edition of Asia Society magazine provides an in-depth look at the year that was in Asia and beyond. 
In addition to articles by Jia Lin Yang and Michelle Yun Maplethorpe, the 2020 volume also features contributions from Kevin Rudd, Fatima Bhutto, Ishan Tharoor, Minjin Lee, Andrew Yang, Ian Bremmer, Orville Schell, Wendy Cutler, and more. To purchase a copy, visit asiasociety.org magazine. And be on the lookout for Asia Society Magazine's new online home, set to launch later this year. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I mean, and I, I wonder, you know, in this very globalized moment that we find ourselves in, I mean, you can access anything from anywhere pretty much, you know, through your computer without leaving your house or even your bed. And so with all of this technology and, and the ability to become more empathetic or become more aware um, and educated about these nuances that we're talking about, that, you know, it's not just this lump of static, you know, Asian Americans. Um, how do you see, or how do you reconcile from your perspective still, you know, a level of ignorance or kind of maybe sometimes willful, again, you know, in the consequence of people, of Asian Americans being attacked or um, or discriminated against in this specific moment of the pandemic, you know, how do you explain that? And, and I think too, maybe to not to add too much at once, but, you know, you also brought up the point of Black Lives Matter and and I think oftentimes when we think about the United States or when people think about the United States it's in very binary terms of black and white. Um, and actually there's this quote that Jean Wu, who is a democratic state representative from Houston, who's Chinese American, he had mentioned, um, this was when um, Andrew Yang was running for president, you know, Asian Americans have been relegated as a sub-minority. We're not black, we're not Hispanic, for a large part, we're an afterthought. And so, you know, how, I guess, how do you see that from your perspective? And then also too, maybe how do we as Asian Americans kind of reconcile this kind of partially invisible um, um, presence in American society, you know, is kind of not really seen and, and our needs not really considered as part of the larger social fabric. I think this is a tremendous challenge to kind of understanding what political power looks like for Asian Americans. I mean, if you think about it, someone who, I mean, I myself feel like I had to become Asian American, right? <laughs> like it's like a thing that you, or at least for me, I can't speak for other people, but I, I became that. I thought of myself as Chinese American basically. And that's how I was raised to imagine myself, this idea of like pan Asian America, I had to sort of learn. And I just, I think we should not assume that people are going to do that um, or that they're gonna do it on their own. And I think you even have to ask yourself, what is the purpose of that project for let's say a Hmong refugee, right? Someone comes, they just need to know that they're gonna be okay here, right? They need to know they can have a job, they can have affordable housing, their kids are gonna go to good schools. Like that's what they're here about. They're not, the idea that there's a sort of separate identity project, um, I mean, I think it's an open question. Do you try to convince that person, hey, you think that you're Hmong and you're this, you're also this other thing. And there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. And I get that those are Chinese people. And they're not you, but you're kind of, it's like, I, I even just talking about it out loud, I'm like, that just seems 
I, mean, I don't know. That just right, yeah. Uh-huh. That just seems like a lot of work, first of all. Um, and then I think, what is it? What is it doing? Right. I mean, what it does potentially is politically, you have more power in numbers, right? But you, but you can't assume. You just simply can't assume that an immigrant showing up, or even someone who's American-born who was raised in an immigrant community, is going to just think, "Oh, yeah, I'm Asian American." It feels to me, at least for me, it was a separate step that had to happen. And so, what does it mean that that step has to happen? as a precursor to more political voice, right? As a larger group, because it does seem obvious that if you chopped everybody up into the Vietnamese Americans, the Korean Americans, like, no politician is gonna go like ethnicity to ethnicity. And then what do you do about smaller minority groups, right? Within that, um, what do you do about people who aren't, what do you do about Uyghurs, right? Like they're, all of these people are here. So I do think the conversation around the identity I think we have to stop at that part and just sort of sit with it a little bit, right? Like, I think for those of us who think we're Asian American, I think we have to be honest about that evolution and what it might look like for someone who, whose English is not strong, right? Who's maybe not college educated, whatever it is, like, how does this whole conception actually include everybody? And what do they want, right? They may not want to be Asian American. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if they don't want that? right? What are we offering? Like what, what unites so many different people? And I think you just can't jump to the box in the sex, the census form to get to that answer. It can't just be, well, you just check that box. So you're with me. There has to be some kind of um, political idea that unites people, right? That is not just a box. And it's about what you want out of life, right? I think it's about those other things that actually are not tied to the food you're eating or the culture it's like, or what you look like, it's something bigger. I think something bigger has to unite this group. Otherwise the work it would take to go to people and say, Oh, you think you're Hmong, but actually you're Asian American as well. just feels like so difficult. Um, I don't know. Very hubristic too, in a way, like, and very paternalistic, like you don't know better, but we're in in here for a generation or two. And this is what you should be. Yeah. And now you're going to learn about this history. You're going to read these books. It just feels a little bit forced to me. Like if someone wants to come to that as they explore who they are and what they, you know, I I hope my book is a way for people to explore it. Right. It's like, if you want to know more about my parents came here. I'm now here. What did, what exactly did we join here? Like, what is this story that we're now a part of? I hope my book, you know, helps you get something to like, hang on to. That's, that's what it did for me. Like, you know, doing the research, but we can't force people to do that. Um, and I think, I don't know. I just think even if you wanted to, it's, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and somewhat misguided as we've been saying. In that yeah. Way. Yeah. I think it's, it, I think it can come off really condescending too. And I think, you know, to be totally frank, I think there's some of that going, there's a lot of intergenerational stuff in our community too, right? It's like, and it's younger people and older people not, you know, they they just are steeped in very different ideas um, and different challenges. And I think a lot of the, a lot of what has to happen um, in the community probably is a lot of kind of intergenerational conversation, right? It's like, you're not reading off the same scripts, you don't even speak the same languages fluently maybe, but people are bringing such, right, even within one family, people are bringing such different ideas of what it means to be Asian or be an immigrant. Right, I mean, I think, and I think that happens over generations too, as you evolve. Like, I think to your point, it's like, when you first come, you keep your head down, you are just focused on, you know, creating a better life. And so then your priorities are different. You probably don't want to make waves, you know, because you probably yeah. in most cases left somewhere where 
it was very challenging. And so you want to kind of have that ease. And then as you become, as your family or your lineage becomes more established, then those priorities shift, right. And, and the needs shift and your identity shifts. I mean, and I, I think also too, just the context of where you are in the United States. I mean, similar to you, my parents immigrated from China and I was, I'm an ABC. I was born here. I was born in Michigan in a very homogenous community. You know, there were not very many minorities. Um, and so that's a very different context and kind of um, environment to be crafting your identity than somebody who is completely immersed in, um, you know, with others from their culture and their community. Um, and so yeah. In my own family, I'm from I'm from Northern Virginia, um, where I'm sitting right now, sitting at the pandemic. And you know, I grew up around many different children of immigrants, uh, really, really ethnically diverse environment, but not you know a ton of other Asian Americans. I'd say I went to a Chinese school on the weekends, so I would see them all there. But in my day to day life, I didn't see them. And my cousins um, are all from LA; they're from California. And they live in the Bay Area and they are surrounded by like the idea of what it means to be Asian American. They grew up. It's funny. It's almost like a Petri dish. Like we're from the same family, but you stick us in opposite coasts. And we, I think, have very different. Right. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Di we grew into different trees. Like it's like it's very different. Um, and I've spent time in New York. Like that's a different very like East Coast Asian Americans and West Coast Asian Americans are just to me like there's there are real differences here. And that's just that's just right within the U.S. geography. That's not even to speak of ethnic diversity, class diversity, right? Like, are your parents, you know, are, do they have graduate degrees or did they not graduate from high school? Like all these things. Um, and I think the more we, I don't know, and my hope is that the more we talk about these different things, you know, and, and compare notes, um, the truer the identity becomes because it's not just sort of pretending like it's only for these people. I think like, when the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out, which I refer to my essay, it just felt like it was, I mean, I could go on about this movie, but it felt like it was more, it, it was just sort of for a certain kind of person, you know, who was very excited about it. But I kept wondering, like, is a Hamong refugee excited about this movie? You know, why or why not? Probably not, right? It's so this idea that it's a great thing for Asian Americans. I'm like, which Asian Americans are excited? Maybe not all of them. And we should, we should, we should explore that. We just shouldn't assume anything about people in this category. Sure, and just, I think that inclusivity, right, is so important to keep in mind. I mean, I think we're running towards the tail end of our time, but I wonder kind of as some parting thoughts for our listeners, you know, if people are interested in learning more or to be able to participate in, um, you know, I guess also to championing um, issues relating to, um, Asians in America, you know, are there platforms or are there resources that you would recommend that people look to, to again, kind of expand this purview, right? And to just better understand the nuances of, of what we're talking about. Um, that would be I guess in a way, you know, family is very fraught, but I might start with your own family, right? Like pause and ask, when did we come here? Okay, what year did we first arrive here? And maybe it was 1850, maybe it was 1970, maybe it was 2017. Why were we allowed to be here, right? Under what circumstances? Were there laws that selected for us to be here? Were there no laws? Therefore, we could come. Um, what was, what happened there, right? Tie your, in a way for me, like, I would just, you know, it's unsolicited advice, but it's like, think about how your family history maps onto American political history, 
Mm-hmm. Because I think when you begin to do that, you then see it everywhere around you. You see it. You, I mean, for me, the experience now of, of being in New York, of driving down uh, Northern Virginia streets and seeing strip malls with like halal restaurants and like, you know, hookah, like you just see different things. You're suddenly like, oh, these people just showed up and they showed up. There's a, there's a way in which it's not just this gauzy nation of immigrants thing. And it's not even that I mean that it gets really dark, although it does get dark too. It's more just like you give it some political context. Mm-hmm. And I think when you begin to do that, I, for me at least, it gives me a rootedness of, okay, we showed up at this time, but we connect to things that came from before. And so, and we connect to things that are far more than just what you hear about in Asian American history textbooks, although those are important. I just mean that there's a broader history involving Jewish Americans, you know, Italian Americans, um, Japanese Americans, uh, people who, you know, Irish Americans, you just feel like, okay, I can see where we fit in that broader picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a lot of people have told me since my book came out, I don't read nonfiction, it's not my thing, but like, the reason I wrote the book was, and to, and to when I reason I wrote the essay is to sort of say like I want to work this out for myself, and I'd love to sort of share what I've learned. But for me, at least, it's it's given me an anchor through a really you know hard, scary time to be Asian American, right? It's like who are we? What awaits me when this is over and I really step out into public? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be blamed? Like I don't I don't really know. Or is it just sort of you know it'll it'll blow over and it's not a thing? But I I think we have to assume that what it means to look Asian in this country is probably going to be different because of this pandemic in ways that we can't really um, predict. But I think I look to history, weirdly. I don't, I don't know if I have, a, I don't have a platform for you, but more I look to history and to books and to memoir as a way to feel less alone, more anchored, and just, you know, more comfortable in my own skin about why I'm here and, and who we are. Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out past episodes by visiting our show page at asiasociety.org podcast. I'm Dan Washburn. See you next time.